Welcome to the RSP cast. Film and data, Mount Waltman, Adam Harstead. Adam, always good to see you. Thanks, always good to be seen. <laughs> so today, um, I thought it would be kind of interesting to talk a little bit about predictability. Just in the sense that it, it just seems like when we're, when I'm online or when I'm reading other people's analysis when it comes to offenses or defenses and they're talking about scheme one of the things that i that that seems to kind of run hand in hand with um you know what people consider to be good or bad is whether something's pre too predictable um and i just wonder sometimes i question that because that sometimes some of the best offenses you know what's coming it's not just about whether the defense knows it's coming or not, but it can, a place coming or not, but it's whether or not they can stop it, whether the execution is strong. Um, and I think that that's something that, that tends to get um, kind of glossed over in the, it's common to get glossed over in our analysis. And a good example of something like that, that I mean, would be Mike Shanahan, watching Mike Shanahan way back in the day with, with Denver, he would often run the same play until the defense could stop it. I mean, he would do that in the run game a, a fair bit, um, and and mentioned that it was just a it was about it was about why would you try to overthink something if the defense can't handle what you show them the first time? Show it again, make them prove that they can stop it, and then work something off of it, or even something or a. The, uh, an example of execution that I thought was interesting this past weekend was the New York Giants. They ran a play that was, they showed offensively that they were going to, they're in more of a formation that was going to run Wildcat. And then they, they switched it up quickly to, you know, and the idea was that they were unpredictable on this play because they switched it up quickly from a Wildcat look to a diamond formation look where Daniel Jones went from receiver back to running back. Saquon Barkley, you know, moved back to a, uh, a receiver to a quarterback. And then Barkley moved from a quarterback kind of spot, taking the snap to a running back spot. And then they ran a, a bullet route to Matt Breda out up the flat. And while that was unpredictable in a sense, in the way that it looked, the key thing about it wasn't necessarily that they changed their looks and caught the the defense off guard because of the change but it was the quickness of the change the quickness between changing from one formation to the next and then snapping the ball quick enough so that the defense didn't have time to adjust as opposed you know and i think sometimes we forget about things such as the timing and quickness of execution or or just the the quality of the execution can sometimes be good enough and and part of demoralizing an opponent doesn't always have to be about um tricking them it can just be about being able to show them that you can dominate them and football is definitely a physical enough game that that dominance aspect is important to to consider yeah, when you brought this up, the first guy I thought of was Peyton Manning. 
Um, and Peyton ran basically the same offense from his rookie year in 1998 to his last year in 2015. You know, there's obviously changes with the times, but, you know, the running game is going to be built around that outside zone handoff. You know, like his favorite passing play is going to be that levels concept where you've got two receivers who are both running in routes at different levels and attacking the defenses. And, you know, I seem to recall, I think Marvin Harrison just always lined up on the same side of the field. They're not moving him around. They're not doing anything. And Peyton's like, you know what I'm going to do? Stop it. Right. And nobody could, you know, eventually, occasionally somebody would manage to stop it. But for the most part, there's not a whole lot of trickery to the game. It's just, I mean, it was just an incredible precision of execution. You know, he would get a new receiver and he would spend weeks telling him like, okay, when you run this route, I want you to break it at exactly 10 and a half yards, not 10 and three quarters, not 10 and one quarter. You break it exactly here every time, you know, and I want you to take like this long before you get into your break so that at this moment in the play, you're going to be exactly here. And it was just drilling that exactness of execution. And the plays are all thoughtfully designed to attack the defense in different ways. And they're all... Um, you know, plays are considered fundamentally sound where when you draw them up on the whiteboard, every defender is accounted for. And if everybody executes their assignment, the offense is going to win. And the plays were largely fundamentally sound. Um, and so they're not relying on a whole lot of trickery, which isn't to say there wasn't room for trickery. You know, I'm reminded of his rushing touchdown against the Cowboys, where he faked an inside handout handoff and then ran like a naked bootleg to the end zone back when he's like the slowest player in the entire NFL. The only way that play works is everybody in the stadium is thinking there is a 0.00% chance that Peyton Manning keeps the ball here and, and does a naked bootleg to the end zone. Um, and he fooled the entire defense. And after the game, he said, you know, that's a play I've kept in my hip pocket. Like, I think the last time I ran that play was 2006. So there's obviously some room for misdirection, but the problem is that misdirection is kind of a finite resource, right? You trick an opponent and you show it, and they're not going to fall for the same trick again. In the NFL, they're too smart. They figure it out too fast. You know, like rookie quarterbacks are susceptible to the zone blitz because they don't, they don't have the experience to draw upon to see it coming. A veteran quarterback, you start showing the same zone blitz a couple times in a row, they're going to figure it out and they're going to they're gonna make you pay for it. Um, so there's definitely room for trickery and for misdirection, you know, misdirection can, it can alleviate you of the burden of executing a certain assignment. You know, if you get a defender out of position because you tricked them, your offense player doesn't need to win that assignment, or maybe you don't even need to account for them in the play. You can draw fundamentally unsound plays that still work because you're relying on the defender, just not knowing what's coming. But, you know, the defense gets paid too. They figure it out. You know, the offense gets paid too. They figure it out. It's a finite resource. Typically, like your misdirection plays, you want to save for high leverage situations. You know, you keep like your your one foolproof play in your back pocket and you save it for a high leverage situation because once the cat's out of the bag, you know, it won't work again. Um, but by and large, the offenses that win in the NFL and the defenses that win in the NFL, they might have misdirection as a tool in their tool belt, but they're not winning primarily because of misdirection. It's the cherry on top of the Sunday. Yeah. And I think that oftentimes just that, like you said, that one time where they do it is just enough to reinforce that it could happen. And, and part of that is the unpredictability in the misdirection itself. And part of it is the combination of that constraint play with the quality of the personnel that could potentially execute it. You know, I mean, if you're going to run a constraint play where, you know, 
Reggie Wayne can put you on skates and put you in a situation where that's the alternative to Marvin Harrison or an Edrin James, you know, reception wide open in the flat where he has a one-on-one -on -one now with a safety. That's going to be far more dangerous. You know, you're going to remember that as a coach. You're going to remember that as a, as you know, as a defense. And and the better the the individual players, the more heightened the intensity that they are going to have of remembering that possibility and not getting caught because the more likely that that play was a huge play, um, and the and the the gravity of that play creates a a greater level of vigilance to always be on guard for it, which then circles us back to the original play that they run most of the time. And I think that, it, you know, the more that people think about that, it's a combination of all the things of scheme, execution, and the quality of the players. Because when, you know, if a backup or a reserve is the one who's the recipient of that, of that constraint play and scores on it it's human nature that we're likely to take that less seriously and say well it was a it was kind of a fluke you know it's probably not going to happen again now if that third string player next year turns out to be a future hall of famer who made his debut on that play um, it may take a couple more times for people to realize the gravity of the situation but this is um this is one of this, um, you know, one of these scenarios where, you know, they will take that more seriously um, heading into the future. So maybe the audience will watch their favorite team and go, I know exactly where this is going. The defense has to know exactly where this is going too. But the difference between maybe you and I watching it or somebody else watching it who's a fan and the safety or the linebackers or the defensive tackle on that play going, I pretty much know where this is going to go too, but I still have to respect this potential constraint built into the play or else if Peyton reads it or Mahomes reads it or Allen reads it, th that I'm not respecting that, they might go right over my head and then the difference between them gaining 10 yards on this play as it's as it looks like it's going to go and them gaining having an 80 yard touchdown and putting us behind early the 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 worthwhile aspect of saying I'm going to give this the respect it deserves even though 9 times out of 10 it's going to going to go the way that I think and even then I'm going to have trouble with it because I'm dealing with a you know, a top four offensive tackle who's very difficult to work with here in this scenario to try and to win my assignment, or I'm dealing with one of the best receivers in the league. Um, and I'm, I, I, I have to, as the safety, I have to respect maybe this flat. If I'm playing one high, I have to respect the, the, the opposite seam, but I still have to get all the way across the field to, to be able to help break up this play if Marvin Harrison beats his man one-on-one, -on -one, I'm going to still have to be able to get over there to try and get over the top. And, you know, we, we don't always respect those challenges and the way that coaches look at it. So if the players aren't top-notch and they get beaten or, or they get stifled, 
then the predictability of the scheme seem is then you know exposed to the point that now the you know the criticism is more about the scheme rather than the quality of the players executing it and it and it's all kind of brought up it all has to be in a level of balance i think for things to work that's why oftentimes when, you know i hear arguments about things like um you know on, on our round table of football guys this week you know um you know there was a there was a discussion about terry mclaurin and how mclaurin was um well he's maybe he's not really a a, a good receiver or maybe a, a a good fantasy starter in terms of your first two options because he doesn't have you know elite elite receivers need you know can overcome bad quarterback play so i was kind of looking at that now how you define what an elite receiver is if you if you define it as a top 24 starter then most of the time he's been able to come through with that regardless of what who the quarterback is and where they're rated but if you're looking at like elite being a top three player at their position in terms of production um, if you're even going to use production as an example of what elite is um, you could look back and say for the past 10 years there were maybe three instances where a top three player had a quarterback who didn't at least have top 12 to top 15 production at their position supporting them um, you know so the idea that say for instance DJ Moore is an elite because he can't overcome Baker Mayfield you know is probably a, you know is based on what I'm looking at if you're using that criteria and that criteria is correct then then you know that's probably a fallacy to make that statement um, and I think sometimes we you know we look at the run game and look at running backs or receivers and say they've they've they need to be able to transcend their surroundings when it's really like no the uh, the thing that makes them potentially elite um is usually only unlocked when you have when, when you have the quality um tools around you yeah i mean larry fitzgerald's a great example i don't think anybody doubts that he's an elite player you know he finished behind Jerry Rice, I believe, in all-time career receptions. Um, he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, when he had Kurt Warner, he had monster production. When he had Carson Palmer, he had like really high-end production for a receiver of his age. In the middle, he had, you know, John Skelton and Max Hall. And he had he was averaging like 700 yards a year. And everybody's like, oh, Larry Fitzgerald is done. And, um, you know, a lot of times just because occasionally a really good receiver will have a really good year with an otherwise bad quarterback doesn't mean that all good receivers should be expected to have good years with bad quarterbacks because there's plenty of examples to the contrary. Um, you were talking about constraint plays a little bit. Um, for any listeners who don't know about constraint plays, I learned about this back when the Dolphins were running the Wildcat and there was a big debate about whether the Wildcat was like a gimmick or like an actual NFL caliber offense. And there was a video of the um, Arkansas offensive coordinator running through like the list of constraint plays on the Wildcat. Um, that was really cool. Um, I enjoyed watching. But a constraint play is basically when a play is put into the playbook, it's not put in on its own. It's usually put in as a set of two or three plays. And you have the main play that you want to run. And there's like any play can be defended if the defense knows it's coming. So there's the way to defend the play 
if the defense knows that play is coming. And then the constraint is another play that looks identical to the first one. But if the defense is defending that first play in the optimal way, there's going to be a weakness somewhere else on the field. And the constraint play is built to attack that weakness. Like a constraint play is not a play that you necessarily want to call, but it's a play that you need so that when the defense starts cheating on your main play, you can punish them for it. Just keep the defense honest. Um, and yeah, that's, I mean, I think we could have like a philosophical debate, like is a constraint play an example of misdirection because you're relying on the defense reading something else? But I, I mean, I think that it's not really misdirection because the defense knows the constraint play is in the playbook and it's a way of keeping them honest. It's a um, counter punch. Right, right. You know, like if you're going to, okay, yes, you know that on this play, I'm going to go, you know, I'm Tom Brady, I'm going to go to Rob Gronkowski because Rob Gronkowski's my guy. He's always my guy. You know, if you cheat safety help over to Gronk's side, well, then I'm going to have, you know, whoever open on the other side. Um, so I'll take that instead. And the defense says, okay, well, we won't cheat safety help over. We're going to try and beat Gronk straight up. Um, and so it looks like, you know, well, why isn't the defense just double covering Gronk? Well, because there's there's a play in the book that will punish them if they do. And the, the play will usually punish them worse than, you know, the outcome of trying to, to play Gronk straight up. Um, so, yeah, I, I love the concept of constraint plays. I'm going to see if I can find that video um, and tweet it on Twitter because yeah. it was it was really interesting um, look into the concept. And it kind of really defines the difference between like a gimmick, like a play that only works because the defense doesn't know what's coming. Right. If, if you were to run it full time, there's no way it could survive. And then something that's fundamentally sound that has this thought process behind it that says, no, it's not just one gimmick play. It's a whole sequence of plays that can take advantage of the various ways defenses would choose to defend it. Yeah, I can give you a couple examples that I think we've seen this season. I mean, one, a good version of, say, a gimmick play to me, and maybe this is uh, would be there was a touchdown pass to Gabriel Davis in the opener against the Rams where Gabriel Davis is tight to the line. It's a, a run-heavy formation, and they run they run a play where they they have him block down and then just slip into the slip into the open field on kind of a on a I believe that was a bootleg for for Allen off play action and he's wide open in the flat. Now if they if they run that on a regular basis you know, in other spots on the field or as a main way of trying to get him open, defenses are going to be a little savvier to that. And you haven't seen him run that play since. And the offense pretty much knows that. Now, examples of straight constraint plays would be, say, Lamar Jackson when they run a bootleg and bef where there's a play action to the running back on, a, on power with a pulling guard to the right. Um... And the running back is, you know, heading towards the hole, and then Lamar Jackson boots in the opposite direction. But before the before the exchange with the running back, there's actually some jet motion by the receiver working across the formation and behind Jackson just as the ball snapped. Now, the, you know, some examples of constraints for that play could be as simple as Lamar Jackson handing the ball to the running back. It could be Lamar Jackson um, booting to the opposite, booting to that opposite side, and um, throwing the ball, throwing the ball um, back to the receiver 
who was jet motioning across and it being a screenplay on that opposite side um, and it being, you know, kind of a misdirection throwback screen. Um, and then the third option could be that he hands the ball to the receiver on the jet, um, you know, and those are all, you know, those are all options that usually he doesn't do. Um, but a Kate, but they're, they're, they're waiting for the defense to overplay any one of those scenarios so that they actually can install that. And like, I haven't seen the screen aspect, but you can see as someone who what studies these things, you can see how that they could incorporate a backside screen in that pretty easily, but haven't done it yet. And then there's also just the, just hand it to the, hand it to the receiver. And they haven't done that yet either. Um, you know, in that scenario, or they don't do it very often. Yeah, my favorite play in football is actually a classic quintessential uh, constraint play, and that's the flea flicker, um, which I think if you look at it on a estimated points added per play, the flea flicker is the most valuable play in football. You know, it's only got like a 50% completion rate, but when it completes, it's like a 40-yard gain every time. <laughs> and if you're, we were talking about Brace's paradox last week, how offenses aren't trying to maximize points on the individual play level, they're trying to maximize it over the whole game. Like the best play in the playbook is the flea flicker. But if you run the flea flicker on every down, you're going to get destroyed, right? Like you're, yeah. you'll are you get like two 40-yard gains and then like 87 sacks, and that'll be the game, Yeah. right? Because defenses, if they know it's coming, they're just it's, – it's not hard to beat. But it serves a good purpose. It makes sure that the, the safeties aren't cheating up too much on running plays, that they're respecting the possibility, even if they see the handoff, that, that – you can still go over the top on them. You know, it gives you running back a little bit more room to operate. It makes future runs a little bit more efficient. I think teams should probably run a few more flea flickers per year. I don't think teams should run five flea flickers per game. It's a constraint play. It's a very, very valuable one. It's an important one to have in the playbook. It's one that teams should probably try a little bit more often, but it's best saved for rare occasions and it mostly serves like most of the value of the flea flicker is not on the flea flicker itself, but it's on all of the other plays besides the flea flicker. It's kind of funny how the difference between NFL and college can also be shown in the types of plays that they run and that, that are successful and what those plays you could probably define them differently or categorize them differently, even though they're the same type of play. Like in college, Cliff Kingsbury could run a lot of wide receiver screens and orbit motion where the receiver works behind the quarterback and then they throw the wide route to him. And because those players are dominant athletes, those can be like base plays in a playbook. But you do that with Rondale Moore in Arizona right now, and really it gets it it seems to be something that the defense is tipped off to pretty easily and it looks very predictable. It looks easy to, it, it tends to be fairly easy to stop. And then you're like, then, you know, you can be someone like myself who's like, lo and behold, they actually let Rondell Moore run a route as a slot receiver more than five yards downfield. And then even then make fun of Cliff Kingsbury for basically still running a screenplay with this. He just had his, had, had the receivers run off the defense, you know, 15 yards downfield rather than have everything take place at the line of scrimmage and it, and I'm going well it's still the same play it's in in philosophy they just executed it a little bit differently um but you know you can still joke this is still a screenplay even though technically it's not a screenplay and and just say that's how predictable his offense is but I think it comes 
down to again the difference between in in the college game you get some top athletes and they can dominate most of the games you know eight eight or nine of the games they can have some dominant plays or dominant moments whereas in the nfl you do that one too many times and it's just like it doesn't matter whether um, rondale moore is matched up against a slower linebacker the linebacker's knowledge of the play and understanding of the timing of it will get him the the best angle to be able to make the tackle i was just listening to greg blosh on the um, ttnl network of the former Bears defensive coordinator back in the um, early to mid 2000s who um, you know had some pretty good defenses statistically in terms of what they were able to do and he had a safety by the name of Mike Brown if everybody if anybody remembers Mike Brown on Nebraska not a particularly fast player um, and but at the same time he was a very good special teams guy very good defensive captain um, productive safety and there's a play where he runs down I'm trying to remember who it was the story was but he ran down a particular particularly fast player like a known player for his speed and Brown ran him down um, you know in the open field coming across the field to do it and the the player later on I guess Greg Blosh saw the player and, and joked with him about how he got run down by by Mike Brown. And the guy goes, well, that guy, he goes, that guy's got some wheels nobody realized. He's like, nah, he said he just, he knew exactly, he knew the angle he had to take. He understands the geometry of the field. And he was able to exploit that with you in a way that you didn't understand. And, and it's like, and I think that that's something that our fan, it's easy for fans to see is that, or something that's not always easy for fans to see is that um, players, you know, the knowledge of angles and, you know, can, can oftentimes foil the level of athletic ability that you don't, that you often see exploited in the college game. Yeah. And I mean, like the closer the talent disparities are, the more important it is for plays to be fundamentally sound, you know, it, in, if everybody executes their assignment, a fundamentally sound play will work. Um, in college, you can get away with, well, it doesn't matter if everybody executes the assignment. If our superstar Heisman contender just blows up everything the defense does, then this play is going to work. You know, it's not a fundamentally sound play. But like even at the NFL level, you can draw up a play on the whiteboard and say, like, okay, all we need is our guard to handle Aaron Donald one-on-one, and this play is a shoe-in, right? And that's a, <laughs> a, theoretically a fundamentally sound play. Right. But you know... Aaron Donald's not going to be held back by a guard one-on-one, right? That's the value of superstars. But but by and large, in the NFL, the Aaron Donalds of the world are the exception. They're extraordinarily rare. Um, Aaron Donald, for my money, is the best defensive tackle to ever play football. Um, so for the most part, like the difference between, you know, even like a very good player and kind of like a lower on the depth chart kind of guy is not that huge. You know, like a good receiver against a mediocre cornerback, most of the time the outcome is going to be the guys both execute as expected and they execute their assignment. Whereas in college, you just get these laughable talent disparities where like, I'm going to draw a play where like, I'm just going to have like one player run a route and it doesn't matter. He'll get open, cover him with like five guys. It doesn't matter. It's so I do wonder if a lot of the, um, 
difficult transition from college to the NFL is just because I think a lot of college play designers can get away with being a little bit sloppy. It's not as important to, to, for your scheme to be sound. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to rely on, on gimmicks and misdirection. And, um, whereas in the NFL, it, it, you know, misdirection can be useful on occasion, but at the end of the day, things need to work on a whiteboard or they're not going to work on the field. Yeah. And I think a perfect example of that is, you know, two examples I can think of is one is Urban Meyer and the, and the way that he drafted um, or was influential in the Jaguars draft because he, uh, you know, I remember during that draft, my buddy Eric Stoner, who was a Jaguars fan and used to write at the RSP, would, he literally he re texted me during that draft and said, Urban Meyer's just basically drafting off Tom Lemming's like top, you know, top 100 list for high school prospects entering college football. From the, from the years that he, while he was still at Ohio State or, or discussing college football at ESPN, and he goes, and it's kind of sad. Um, so, and I, and I had a good laugh about that, but it makes total sense in terms of where you're coming from because they do value that athletic ability beyond, maybe with too much weight. And and the the precision of the game is important. I mean, there's that... There's a story I've often told about Mike Holmgren learning learning the West Coast offense as the you know offensive coach for Bill Walsh and complimenting Joe Montana on hitting Jerry Rice on a post route in practice and was like you know great throw Joe you know as he hits Rice and Bill Walsh proceeds to lecture Holmgren on the difference between what's pinpoint and what's not pinpoint. And that you should never praise the quarterback for throwing a ball that the receiver that isn't pinpoint, and and explaining the difference and explaining why and, and you know showing how that when you project to the NFL, if you have, uh, you know if you have a top cornerback covering that Jerry Rice and that ball isn't exactly where it needs to be, then a, a high percentage of the time it's not going to be a catch. Or if it's a catch, it's not going to go for the yardage that they want it to go for based on the break of the route. And so the the precision, they have to be much more demanding about the precision. Um, and that was a lesson that Holmgren really never forgot you know, from that perspective. But I think it also leads into scouting. And I think that's often the difference because I see play after play where, where people will show highlights of players and I used to do it too. I mean, there were before I learned certain techniques and I'm still, and I'm, and I'm still prone to doing it on occasion with things that I'm still learning, but I will show a high, you know, I've seen someone show a highlight of a player and they'll be like, this guy's great, you know, and he's going to be a great NFL player. And I'll look at the play and go and, and look at the inner workings of the play and how it developed. And, and my takeaway will wind up being different than what, this play that got 10,000 likes, you know, is because that play will be, you know, the got the running back running through a gargantuan hole, um, that you will never see, um, or, or you will see maybe, you know, a 10th of a percent of a time in that guy's career in the NFL. Um, and they will say, you know, this guy's going to be a great running back when in, in fact, you know, Anthony McFarland couldn't get out of his own way half the time, you know, as a, as an example of a player that would get 
some of these highlight loves and say he might be the next Chris Johnson and he's a sneaky good player. And I'm thinking I can find, you know, watching him and watching him and play against the Jaguars and seeing a play where he, that even the, even the, um, the commentators like Charles Davis, who's an excellent commentator, Charles Davis will see the play the first time because again, he's only going to get to see it once, maybe twice. And his first thought was like, well, there was nothing there for him to, to exploit, you know. And then I look at the play and I'm thinking, I don't think that's the case. But that's because I had the luxury of looking at it multiple times. And I'll look at it and say, I bet you, I wonder what Frank Gore would do on that play. And then I, and I, and, I, and I've always laughed about it because I looked up the, I, I watched, I pulled up a Frank Gore game that I had recorded from that week. And the very first play I kid you not, Adam. It was the same concept, and it was it it was a similar actually it was a very similar concept, and the same thing happened on that concept in terms of how the defense played it and the the success they had. And Frank Gore got a 15 yard gain off of it, you know, whereas Anthony McFarland lost like three yards. And the difference was how they read the play. But you you could easily look at that play and think there's nothing there, and and so what we see how we perceive things and what we see in the layers and how we see it can really have um have a stark difference between what is good and what really isn't good and if mike holmgren can't see the difference initially and he's coaching for the san francisco 49ers responsible for helping develop and implement the offense that joe montana and jerry rice were in and he needed bill walsh to show him that then I think that's a I think that's a perfect example for just the difference between what you know we as media might see and what coaches might see, or depending on or just levels of perspective and training that people have. Yeah, you know, there's the old joke that you know, like there's college open and there's NFL open, and you know, it it's it's a much smaller and more precise game. I was laughing when you were talking about Urban Meyer drafting with the Jaguars. I was at Florida during the Urban Meyer years. And I totally, you know, when he made the Etienne pick, I'm like, his mindset is, this guy's going to be my Percy Harvin. I remember Percy Harvin. I would just throw him a bubble screen and he'd get me 15 yards. Let's just do that in the NFL. Let's just throw bubble screens to Travis Etienne and let him get me 15 yards. I mean, you know, this is easy. Yeah. yeah, it's easy to coach offense in college when you have Tim Tebow and Percy Harvin and guys who are just going to, you know, they don't need to be exploiting their matchup. They're going to go above and beyond. In the NFL, you don't really get that. Yeah, he and Steve Spurrier th both thought they could just they could install their offense and then go play golf the rest of the day, you, you yeah. know, at, like they did, like they probably did at, at their at their SEC schools, you know, but uh, or at Duke. Um, but I, I'm just curious, like to end the show, I, I you know, I want to kind of ask it, just you a series of questions, and just would be just kind of fun to learn a little bit more about. Um, kind of our leanings or biases about things and or and you may approach this differently to the point that you've kind of eliminated this from from your lexicon of mistakes but i would love to know who are the kind of players that you you know i i kind of joke that it's kind of like psychological imprinting that there's players that we find appealing and over the years, you tend to go, it's the same type of player that I screw up on. Like, who's the player that type of player you fuck up on? Like, and for me, it's like, 
it, it begins with Michael Westbrook, the former Washington um, wide receiver out of Colorado, who was big, strong, fast, great body control, great in the open field, and liable to self-destruct. Like, I don't know what it was, but I had this imprinting that if I could find a player who was going to screw up because of how they behaved on the sideline or off the field or their unwillingness to like work, but had massive talent and would flash it. They were, I was going to pick them, whether it was, whether it was Westbrook or Josh Gordon, you know, those were, those were guys that I, I, I tended to imprint towards and like Gene Bramble, who used to joke that, um, he can't, he couldn't quit Mark Ingram early in Mark Ingram's career. And so, and then Ingram is still playing pretty decently, maybe not for fantasy, but still playing decently to this day at his, at his venerable age. Um, you know, the guy I couldn't quit was Michael Westbrook. So I'm just wondering, are, are there players that have, that you find that there's an imprinting that you go, sure enough, if he's going to screw up, it's going to be this way because I like players like this and I'm tended to be drawn to them. I got to ask first, did you also like Corin Robinson? That's who immediately who was springing no. to mind when you're talking about. No, okay. no, I didn't, but that's, but I can see how he fits in that, you know, for sure. Um, I think I'm probably a bit different than, uh, than most in this space. Like to me, like football and football analysis are two completely different pursuits, right? They're, I, they're completely divorced for me and there's aesthetic preferences I have when watching football. Um, you know, I love watching, um, the guys who go off script a lot, you know, I really like, um, yeah, I, I like smaller running backs, like the shifty guys, the Brian Westbrook types, um, aesthetically, that's my preference. Marshall Falk would be my pick if I had started a team just because, you know, it's one of those guys where like, we're talking about fundamentally sound, like Marshall Falk can do so many different things that you can drop a fundamentally sound defense for him. And then he'll just shift to another place on the field. And all of a sudden your defense is not fundamentally sound anymore. You know, I love those movable chess piece type players. Um, but that's an aesthetic preference in terms of like actually analyzing stuff for fantasy football. Um, I tend to be, you know, I don't want to say like robot like, but it's, it's very, you know, precise and very detached and unemotional. Um, largely I'm copying off of other people's homework where like, you know, if football guys projections say this guy's going to be good. I say, okay, football guys projections. I'll just go with that. I'm not going to try and outcompete you on that field. Right. Um, every people ask like, is this player a buy or a sell? I say, well, everybody's a buy and everybody's a sell. It just depends yeah. on the price. Um, my one exception is I do allow myself a couple homer picks. Rob Gronkowski for the longest time was, I, I was never going to sell Rob Gronkowski. I had opportunities where I could and I should have, and I knew that like what I'm getting back is more than what he has. But I'm, I just made peace early on that Rob Gronkowski was going to retire on my squad, and he did twice. Um, you know, I've made peace right now. Patrick Mahomes is going to retire on one of my dynasty squads. People will come in and make offers, and I'm like, I'm going to level up front. Like, what I want for him is way more than he's worth. It just because I enjoy having him on my team. But like 95 to 99% of what I'm doing is very divorced and unemotional and calculated, and it's it's strictly cost-benefit. Sure, that makes sense. So you were raised a Broncos fan, right? Like you grew up being a Broncos fan. Um, yeah. What is was part of that because of where you lived, and, and at the same time it was 
you know, Elway and Terrell Davis and the and and that era of offense was it around that time or was it before that? Yeah, so I was born in 1984 in um, Colorado. So I grew up my entire life. It, the Broncos were just kind of like the background of my life. I wasn't really that into football, even. You know, I watched the Super Bowls because you know everybody watched the Super Bowls and everybody I knew was rooting for the Broncos, so I was rooting for the Broncos too. I wasn't one of those contrarians who just picked the other team just to, to yeah. spite everybody. Um, but I didn't really pay attention to football. You know, when I was 14, I couldn't tell you the difference between a quarterback and a cornerback. Um, I couldn't name like 10 non-Broncos in the NFL. Uh, and then when I went off to college, you know, I found myself with a lot of free time and I originally got into football through fantasy football because um, I'm big on puzzles and brain teasers and a friend of mine said hey this is kind of a fun puzzle and brain teaser and I'm like okay but if I'm going to be good at this I guess I need to learn something about football like what conference are the teams in things like that can I I couldn't even name all NFL franchises um and then as I got more and more into football I found that you know like I enjoy the game aspect of it like the the actual football I enjoy a lot too in addition to but separate from the actual the game of fantasy football um and the more i got into football the less um married i got to the broncos you know i'm a pretty lukewarm broncos fan all else being equal i'd rather they be good than bad but i'm not like losing any sleep over their yeah. start to this season this year i've been spoiled as a fan i, I recognize that um i joke a lot that you know, I'll, people will say something on Twitter and then the Twitter mob piles on or on message boards back in the day. And they say, oh, do you even watch the games, bro? And the joke is I would probably be better at fantasy football if I didn't watch the games. But I like football. <laughs> right. uh, you know, like I I like football, so I'm going to keep watching the games. That's 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 kind of the joke with I think that could be a joke with the RSP, because when it when it comes to college football, I don't watch the games, not in the way that people watch the games. I don't follow the narratives. I don't know, you know, that I've, I've said before, I, the first time I watched Lamar Jackson, um, I watched four or five games of him and thought, I need to find out a little bit more about the guy now. And I found out like eight months later that he had won the Heisman Trophy. Like I didn't even know who had won the Heisman Trophy, you know, but when people stop and ask me about, you know, about that aspect of what I do, they presume that I'm glued to the big game that's going on every week or the three big games every week and commenting about all of that. And it's like, no, nah, I don't know about it. I don't watch it in that order. I I'm right now. I'm usually watching half of the games I'm watching are from 2021 or 2020 and not 2022. Um, you know, I may watch a couple of games at this point, from 2022 but i'm often doing stuff from before so that i can kind of look and see if there's any progression as i as i round out my my film watching of those players i usually wait on quarterbacks until you know until later in the season when i've had enough tape to to look at it all in a row um because i like to kind of analyze their games over progression but because there's so many details i'm looking at i'd rather kind of concentrate them at a, on a block of, of things because I find that I get into a better flow that way but it's uh but it is funny I mean how how that goes that like people do you even watch the games and it's like in fantasy yeah you don't you don't need to watch the games really especially if you're doing analysis from that from that perspective which obviously 
has its has great merit and works out quite well. Now we do things for different styles because I do watch a I do watch a lot of tape um, and and spend a, t- a lot of time watching the league and and trying to look for edges that um, that go against the projections and go against the football guy stuff that I see. But a lot of that's just because. I know that that's the other way to go and I'm already doing it already serves my purpose for scouting the NFL to help inform what I do with the college game. It's convenient for me to do uh, on another level. But if I were just playing strictly fantasy football, I probably wouldn't watch the games either. I would probably I would probably spend more time and especially in most leagues where if I wasn't facing people who are very stats oriented on a regular basis about what they do. Um, I find that the film gives me a chance at having an edge uh, against competition because they are, because when I do the round tables and I see how they, they think and how they look and uh, how they, how they, what their process is for looking at things. I think the, the best way for me to get ahead is on the waiver wire and to make start sit decisions that are not that are rooted more in film where I have the immediacy and hope of being able to get an edge um, where maybe it doesn't show up in the data um, you know early on um, so that maybe I can make the adjustments before they can but in the, but in a league where but in certain leagues it just would make more sense for me not to do any of that you know so it's a you know, it's kind of funny how, how that works. Um, do you, you know, just, you've really become though a historian in a lot of, or an appreciator, someone who really appreciates the history of the game. Are there any books or there's anything that you found memorable in terms of things that you would recommend to anybody who's interested in history? I know you mentioned one site, you know, a few weeks ago, but are there any other resources that you that you just really find worthwhile that people would wanna that you think people would um, benefit to check out? Yeah, so the late Chris Wessling, I think, had the definitive list of football books, um, and he he had I mean like everything from like the very narrative from the very data driven side, like the hidden game of football, uh, which I hear is actually going to be re released this year, and that's pretty oh, cool. exciting. Um, to you know like the very narrative side um, paper lions and like slow getting up and, and just like first person accounts of being in the NFL and accounts of covering the team. And, um, and so like for book recommendations, I, that list is still floating out there somewhere. That's as, as far as I'm concerned, that's the definitive list of football books that are worth reading um, in terms of getting into history. A lot of it is, um, I mean, again, I got into fantasy football because of, you know, like the puzzle aspect. And I kind of got into history for the same reason. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm cruising along in pro football reference and there's there's puzzles like why are these players numbers so good, but they're not getting the attention they're deserving? You know, like, let's figure that out. And sometimes it's there's an explanation for it. And sometimes the explanation is that player was underrated. And um, the big thing for me is getting plugged into a community of like minded people. Um, Twitter has been a big part of that. Um, a lot of people hate on Twitter, but if you are in a very small niche, like Twitter is how you find your people. Um, and if you're very good and intentional about curating your feed, I don't think there's a better tool out there today for for finding the people who who have what you need 
and who can who have similar interests to you and who can share your passions. Um, yeah, I think like if you really want to get into um, football from a data driven side, I would say the hidden game of football is a great entry point. That's kind of the book that sparked the current iteration of the analytics revolution. Um, came out, I believe, back in the 80s. And it, it talked about a lot of concepts that at the time were very esoteric, but today are foundational, like the idea of estimated points added per play and success rate, um, a lot date back to that. Um, if you're more interested in um, the, like, watching film, um, I know um, Chris Brown's smart football books are fantastic, and they were a really great resource for me. Um, take your eye off the ball is a good way uh you know like as as casual viewers when we're watching football we tend to just follow the ball around the screen and and i'm usually in casual viewer mode because i that's more fun but if you really want to start analyzing football you need to start looking away and that's a great a great list of like cues you can look for and how you can evaluate play success um and then otherwise yeah I, like i said i for me it's been about um finding my people who who share my passions and um a lot of, of talking and iron sharpening iron and, and just doing what I enjoy. Yeah. If I were to, from a film watching standpoint, if there were two books that I would recommend right now that I think have really changed how I evaluated quarterbacks in the past 15 years, um, it's this one from Headset to Helmet by um, Dub Maddox and Darren Slack. And Dub Maddox is a coach he was at jenks high school in oklahoma um a high school where um darwin thompson came through um you know but uh he he is known from certain quarterback coaches that i know like will hewlett who who works with a lot of people and i've taught a lot of people in the college and pro game and as part of the qb collective with sean mcveigh and and kyle shanahan and Will contends that Dub Maddox isn't a co major college head coach right now because college coaches are afraid to hire him because they know that he will succeed them in short order when thing you know in terms of the success he had. And so that book, Headset to Helmet, which is a really good outlining of how to read leverage and how to process how quarterbacks can quickly process information and what's wrong with the old methods of of um teaching scheme and teaching game plan versus positive um you know more streamlined ways of doing it and more and more people are learning this method he's a very popular guy on the lecture circuit for for coaching clinics and people are installing that and another one that is good is is along the same theme but it's just a little bit more advanced as adapt or die um by Maddox just alone in this but um those are two ones that if you really want to get a good feel for the difference between what makes a good quarterback in college and a good quarterback in the pros um these reading these two books um will go a long way towards that even if the quarterbacks didn't learn by this method the best quarterbacks tend to think this way you can see it in their execution so um, those are those are worthwhile. Is there anybody? Um, is there anybody that you've been 
noting through any of the work that you've been doing that stands out as you know from a fantasy perspective that people should be aware of either uh, um, players that y you know look like that they they might be um, worth um, you know acquiring in some manner or anybody that you think that might be worthwhile to uh, maybe sell you know buy or sell uh, yeah in redraft I mean I don't really have opinions on redraft I'm mostly just going off of what football guy says uh, Dynasty, um, yeah. So there's a guy I follow on Twitter. Um, I only follow 50 people on Twitter. Uh, so basically, if I follow someone, it's it's a pretty strong endorsement of their work. Um, there's a guy named Cooper Adams. He's at Coops FB. Um, and he does a lot of interesting charts every week on like expected points versus actual points. You know, like if you, you look at like if you throw receivers – passes in this area of the field they're expected to average this many points actually they scored this many and over time um, the amount of expected points trends towards the amount of of actual points um and he does charts on that every week and then another a fun one he does is um expected points points per game plotted against um age and you can see like guys in the top right are very, very young and very, very productive. Guys in the top left are older, but still very productive. You know, guys in the bottom left are old and not that productive. Don't pay up for them. And it's one of the most useful charts of the week. Um, Chris Olave is doing insane right now in like expected points at his age. Um, there's like a cloud of receivers in the top right and it's Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson, Amon Ross St. Brown, CD Lamb, and Chris Olave. Uh, that's the cluster he's in right now. You know, he's above like Jalen Waddle and T Higgins and guys who typically cost much more in dynasty. So you just, he's... you just mentioned some of my highest scoring receivers pre-draft in the past five years, other than Amon Ross St. Brown, all of yeah. them were like at, at or near the top. That's interesting. Yeah. And then, I mean, if you get a little bit older, Marquise Brown and Michael Pittman are like 25 and they're also still way up in that cluster. Um, and a lot of my process in Dynasty is just, like, get productive young guys, right? It, especially if they're not named Brown, like Marquise named Brand. Like, Marquise Brown is perennially underrated. He's always outperforming his cost. Um, I think this injury gives a really great buy window if um, if you missed out on him this offseason and you missed out on his hot start. Uh, so that's – I like guys like that who are who are very productive and very young or guys who are maybe – underperforming what we should expect like Deontay Johnson's a guy who just the quality of targets is there and the production's not um and in the long run that tends to even out so those would be some names who I if I don't already have them rostered I'm probably putting some offers out very cool well this was this was always a fun conversation and you know you can catch Adam Harstead at Adam Harstead on Twitter you can find his excellent work at football guys including his articles and projections um you know, definitely a must read, must listen, you know, analyst in this field. You can find me at Matt Waldman. You can find this podcast at pretty much any outlet that you download podcasts. It's the you know, RSP cast, Matt Waldman's RSP cast. Subscribe and you won't miss all the different podcasts that we do throughout the week. Um, you know, here with a variety of guests, Adam and I, um, I have the pleasure of getting to do this with Adam on a weekly basis every Thursday. So uh, stay tuned for next week. And I'm sure that we'll have some fun conversation then as well.